0: listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. You see the gospel of John is a very different gospel than Matthew, Mark or Luke. So we have these four gospels in the New Testament. But John really kind of stands out. And I'm going to date myself here a little bit with this comment. But I would say that John is the, the Paul Harvey of the Gospels. So if, if you got that one, raise your hand. Right, okay, so blessings to all of you all. So for those of you who didn't get that, Paul Harvey, a generation ago, maybe not a generation, but a while back, was a very popular radio host. And he would tell a story, and as he would start to tell the story, it would be intriguing, it would be compelling, but it wouldn't seem um, recognizable. And then by the time he got to the end of the story, you would realize that what you've heard is the backstory of something you know. And he had a famous tagline that says, and that's the rest of the story. Um, and so we're going to get a bit of that, kind of that's the rest of the story about the Gospels. Because we're going to do our best to kind of dive deep into the lives of these characters. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more like a continuing drama. So for those of you who kind of watch a lot of television or go to the movies, it's one main story. There's very little subplot in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You're introduced to your main character. His name is Jesus. Before you know it, you just barely turned around, and some people are trying to kill him, right? Um, and they're after him and he's on the move and he's moving from Galilee he carries his, his popular ministry from the countryside of Galilee down to the city of Jerusalem and things blow up on him and before you know it he's doing this stuff in the temple he, by the end of the week he's been arrested and he's been convicted and he's been sentenced and he gets executed that's the story and he gets resurrected <laughs> That's the story. Don't leave that part out. I mean, Mark kind of almost left that part out. But anyway, don't leave that part out. It's a big part of the story. But the Gospel of John isn't like that at all. The Gospel of John is, uh, in fact, it's not even that it has one big plot with lots of little subplots. It's more like a sitcom. It's more like little episodes. And each little episode is kind of self-contained. The story starts, it's Jesus and somebody... And they're having some kind of conversation or what have you. There are other characters in the story. But by the, by the time you get to the end of that passage, that whole story is kind of concluded. Like you've been introduced to a problem. The problem's been resolved. And it, it comes to a conclusion. It's, it's like watching a sitcom. Like you know who your main characters are. And they, they will always appear. And then you might have that second tier of characters who kind of appear every now and then. But they don't have to be in every episode. So I'll date myself here uh, just a bit again. But uh, when I was, I don't watch sitcoms much anymore, but when I did, a popular one was called Seinfeld. And it was after Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian. And it was a little kind of autobiographical. So every single episode of Seinfeld had Jerry in it. Like you had to have Jerry. Without Jerry, you you didn't have an episode. And in the Gospel of John, without Jesus, you don't have an episode. Like there's not a single story in the Gospel of John where Jesus doesn't appear. Then you have your other characters who are pretty important. Um, You have the disciples, which would be kind of like uh, George and Kramer and Elaine. Like it's very rare to see an episode of Seinfeld without those characters. And as well, it's very rare that any story in the Gospel of John appear without the disciples. They are definitely part of that story. Then there's that other tier of characters who you may or may not see. So like the mailman. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Newman. Yes. How could I forget? Newman. <laughs> yeah. So Newman's not in every episode, but you see him enough that you know who he is. Or um, the family or love interest of the other main characters, right? That they, they will appear. So the same thing happens in, in the gospel. So... Uh, The mother of Jesus appears multiple times, kind of like Jerry's mother would appear multiple times. Um, Nicodemus does appear three times in the gospel. He appears up front. He appears about halfway through, and then he appears at the end, kind of like maybe the soup Nazi. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell if Nicodemus is a good character or a bad character. There's some of those kind of... In in any story, your your hero or your quote-unquote, you know, your protagonist, your good guys should be fairly clear. And then your antagonist, uh, your bad guys, should be very, fairly clear. However, the stories that I like the best are the stories where that's a bit more complicated. Like you can't quite tell who you're supposed to root for because the characters themselves are, are, are complex. Do you get that? I love that, actually. I mean, I think that makes for a really good story because I think we're complex. I don't think we're all good. I don't think we're all bad. I think that we're, we're in this world and we're doing our best to respond faithfully, but we mess up a lot. And we find ourselves not just messing up in what we do, sometimes we find ourselves messing up in, in, in how we feel or how we, you know, our, our, our perspective. And it's that, I think, that really, really speaks to the truth of reality. So today... We're going to start with a look at this woman at the well. Her testimony of Jesus, right, when she lays her hand on the Bible, so to speak, and swears to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, is a pretty interesting one. The Gospel of John actually ends, um, I'll say it ends, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where it says, Jesus did a lot of things and said a lot of things. But what has been written down here in the Gospel of John has been written down so that you might believe and that in believing, you might receive eternal life. Like, that's the whole point. We're going to hear these various testimonies and we're going to try and, you know, to quote Paul, test all things and hold fast to the truth. And we're going to see what we believe and what we have heard. So this is a reoccurring theme in the gospel as you hear a testimony. It's who, who kind of believes and who doesn't, and who's faithful and who's not. And there's some characters in the gospel that there's no ambiguity. They seem to be certainly good. And there's some, again, that there's no ambiguity. They, be, they seem to be certainly bad. I'll just point out one. Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, says... We have no king but Caesar. That's a bad one. <clears throat> and Or the mother of Jesus, right? She's, she's obviously a good one. But then there's a lot of them and th- that occupy this middle space, at least partially anyway. And those are the ones I find most intriguing. And so we're going to start today by hearing the testimony of the woman at the well. So this story, I think, is fairly familiar to us. It's one that gets often told. It is unique to John's Gospel. That is, this story is not told elsewhere. Uh, The Samaritans were an interesting group of people. Uh, They lived kind of north of the southern kingdom of Judah. They lived south of, of Galilee. It was in the hill country of kind of the central part of the nation, They were a people group that were a descendant of of the ancient Israelites, the northern tribes that had lived there, and the Canaanites who had lived there before Israel. When the Assyrians had come through, they had destroyed the northern kingdom. This story is told in the Old Testament. A lot of them had been taken into captivity into Assyria. And then those who got kind of left behind then kind of intermarried with the locals and with other folks who had kind of, kind of traveled through. And in a way, it produced a whole new group of people. They had um, kind of a, a mixed family heritage that would have come from different people groups and different languages and even different religions. And so for the Jews who lived in Galilee or who lived down in Jerusalem, the Samaritans were kind of considered unclean. Uh, their, their cultural heritage was too, too much of a mixed bag. Uh, their belief system wasn't quite matching up with Judaism. And so they were outsiders. <clears throat> we know in Luke's gospel, he tells us a parable of a Samaritan who's quite merciful, right? We call, we call that person the good Samaritan. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, Scripture never says, calls the Samaritan good. Scripture calls the Samaritan good. Merciful, the one who acts with mercy. But in any case, it's important to note, I think, that never in Scripture are the Samaritans kind of cast in a negative light. Even though that we know that in Jewish culture they often were, they never were shown that way in Scripture. Every single Samaritan in Scripture is obviously one of the good guys, uh, a person who's kind of getting it right. And so Jesus apparently has been down in Jerusalem. He's on his way back up to Galilee. And any good rabbi would have gone down into the Jordan Valley and made his way up and then through the mountain range into Galilee. It was about a three-day trip uh, on foot. But there was a faster way to get there. You could start uh, in Jerusalem and just head north along the mountain ridge. You could get there in about a day. So I want you to imagine a city that was split between, say, the north part of the city and the south part of the city. It's going to take a lot of imagination for you all to do this, right? And so for those who live in the, in the, in the north city, right, uh, they have their own kind of culture and location and restaurants and stuff. And then there's those who live in the south city, right, as though the two cities are you know, completely separated. And then imagine they put a, a, a road that wrapped around the city, something like the Polk Parkway, <laughs> where you could, you could access north to south without ever having to go through the middle part of the city, you know where you have Lighthouse Ministries or Gospel Inc. or Parker Street, the, that, you know, that part of Memorial that you lock your doors on when you hit the uh, traffic lights you know, we find some way to circumvent those areas that we find problematic, and we live in our little enclaves in the north or the south. That was, that was, that was a better allegory than maybe what you're appreciating, but <laughs> it's, it's there. So, Jesus, as opposed to taking the Polk Parkway in order to get from south Lakeland to north, uh, he just goes right through the middle. And when he gets there... Um, they don't have anything to drink and they don't have anything to eat. And so he sends his disciples into town to, to get something. And so while he's there, this woman comes. It's the middle of the day. And she's a Samaritan. And he says, can I have a drink of water? And she responds in a, in a very um, kind of appropriate way. She says, well, you're a Jewish man, and I'm a Samaritan woman, and we don't don't share. We don't share drinks, right? For you to drink from my cup would make you, quote-unquote, unclean in your religion. And Jesus says, "Um, if you knew uh, who was asking for a drink, if you knew me, you would ask me for a drink. And her response is one of the best response I've ever heard. She said, you, sir, do not even have a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and this well is deep. <laughs> like, at first, he's just some unorthodox Jewish guy. And then he's a little, whoo. <laughs> you know, what's this guy talking about? And, and so Jesus says, I have... He ups the ante a bit. I have living water. You drink this stuff, and you won't have to. You won't have to drink again. You won't get thirsty anymore. And she's like, and I'm not quite sure how to take her response at this point. She's like, okay, give me some. Now I don't know if she's convinced by the guy, or if she's just trying trying to call his bluff. Yeah, let's let's try it. Let's let's, let's have it. And he says, <clears throat> he turns the conversation on her a bit. He says, all right, uh, go get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. And then, in this kind of Pentecostal, charismatic, little creepy kind of way, (laughs) he's like, that's right, you don't have a husband, but you've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And then she says, well, okay, prophet, and, and before we read past the, uh, the affirmation of the woman calling Jesus prophet, we have to, this is one of those kind of deep dives, right? The Jews believed in all, all kinds of prophets, right? They had Samuel, they had Nathan, they had Elijah, they had Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and Amos Obadiah. Just on and on and on, right? But the Samaritans, like the Sadducees, only read the Torah... And in the Torah, there had only been Moses. So in her faith, there was only one prophet, though that one prophet had prophesied the coming of another. It's Deuteronomy 18. God will raise up another one like me. So for her to say to him, after he's kind of read her mail, um, you know, to kind of acknowledge him as a prophet is to kind of step a step of faith towards him in a way. <clears throat> and he says, you know, you all worship here on this mountain at the well of Jacob. <clears throat> the Jews, they worship down in Jerusalem. But the day is coming where it won't matter if you're here or there or wherever. North Lakeland, South Lakeland or downtown. It won't matter where you are because all those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. And she leaves her bucket and she goes into town and she tells everyone what she had experienced. I don't think it's insignificant that she left her bucket. <laughs> like she had gone there to get water, but this, this had prioritized her day. So she goes into town, she tells people this experience that she's had, and they all come out, it says. <clears throat> And they believe in Jesus because of her testimony. They believe in Jesus because of her testimony. Now, I know we've often jumped, and even this video did it to a certain degree, it jumped to a certain conclusion about the woman that was somewhat derogatory, kind of questioning about why is she there by herself or why is she there in the middle of the day And I think sometimes we outdistance the text when we imagine her to be a woman of ill repute. I mean, she's been married five times, we do know that. And she's living with a man that's not her husband, so you think, well, obviously, she's a quote-unquote bad lady. Except that in the ancient world, women couldn't divorce their husbands. Husbands could divorce their wives, but legally it didn't happen the other way around. And so we don't know that she'd been divorced. I mean, her husbands could have died, or some could have died and some could have divorced her. Amongst the things a husband, a Jewish husband could divorce his wife for included burning breakfast. A lot of things could have happened to her. But I'll say this. Whatever her past may have been, when she testified about Jesus, they all believed. I mean, if we measure evangelism, successful evangelism, by how many converts you have, which I think there's more, more to that than not, but um, if, if we measure evangelism by the number of converts you have, her testimony, she's the most successful evangelist in the whole gospel. She testifies nothing but the truth, and her whole community comes and believes. And they say, we believed because of her testimony. And then Jesus stuck around for a couple of days. And after they've all spent some time together, they're saying, well, now we believe. This is a nice progression of faith. Too. Now we believe because we have seen and heard. But originally we believed because of her testimony. That's powerful. That When we bear witness to Jesus, when we live a life that says, this is who I know Jesus to be, it can have an effect on folk that they come to faith. But we want them to eventually have their own faith. We want them to move beyond coming to faith because of our testimony to encountering Jesus and saying, now we believe. Because we have spent time. I mean, this is this is a wonderful story that we can uh, hope and strive to emulate in our lives. But as is the case with any witness in a courtroom, we're not going to call you to the witness stand unless you've had some kind of personal engagement with the case. Yeah. I mean, you hear about court cases all the time, but you're not called to be a witness. You'd only be called to be a witness if you were an eyewitness or if you were a character witness, right? If you were intimately involved somehow. And the challenge sometimes in the Christian life is we get so busy trying to do our Christianity that we don't end up with a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you can't be a witness. You have to know Jesus in order to be a witness because you have nothing to testify about. So we're going to back up a chapter and we're going to look at Nicodemus. It's an interesting one. Nicodemus comes at night and he addresses Jesus as teacher, as rabbi. He's very respectful. I mean, Nicodemus is himself a ruler of the Pharisees. And so he says, we know you must come from God. We, we see what you do. We, we, we hear what you say. We know you must come from God. And so he asked him, what, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, you must be born anew. Uh, we sometimes translate this, you must be born again. Interestingly enough, this is the only passage in all of Scripture that uses born again language. You've heard that term, I'm born-again Christian? It's only in John 3. Like nowhere else in the whole Bible. It's all, that one page is the only page that uses that, that language. And, and Nicodemus is like, uh, I'm too big. I know, right, it is supposed to be funny. He's like, I'm too big, I, I can't get back into my mom. How could I be born another time? To which Jesus asks him a question. He goes, aren't you a teacher Now, once again, um, understanding the tone of a comment is difficult when it's just written down. But that does sound to me to be a little sarcastic. Like, you must be born anew. Jesus is obviously speaking metaphorically here. And Nicodemus is like, well, I'm too big. And and he's like, oh, man, are you a teacher? are Are you a teacher of the law? Do you understand symbolism? Have you heard a figure of speech? <laughs> and Jesus goes on to explain, and he says, th- that passage of scripture that we open the service with. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish Who would have eternal life, because Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Right? Sometimes we condemn ourselves, but Jesus is not the condemner. Right? Step into the light. Step into the light. It's interesting that Nicodemus came at night, and Jesus' response is, step into the light. Let's look at these two characters. Nicodemus is a man, and the woman at the well is a woman. We know Nicodemus' name. His name is Nicodemus. We don't know the woman's name. And church tradition never gave her a name, she is, she is nameless. He is a Jew, she is a Samaritan. He is a man of letters, a ruler of the Pharisees. She's coming to the well in the middle of the day. He's coming at night. She's coming in the light. He walks away without the story telling us anything about how he personally responded. She leaves her bucket at the well and goes into town and tells everybody she knows, come and see. They both placed their hand on the Bible they swore to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's undoubtedly she's a disciple of Jesus. She's the most successful evangelist of Jesus. Nicodemus does appear at other times in the gospel kind of like Newman kind of just pops up. It's this character here and there. At one point we're about halfway through the gospel and the Sanhedrin is meeting. This is the Jewish court. And so as a ruler of the Pharisees, as a leader of the Pharisees, he's on. You know, he's like an attorney, right? He's, he's on that court in that um, government-making kind of body. And he speaks up on Jesus' behalf. But then he gets challenged and he kind of quiets down. And then the last time we see Nicodemus is at the burial of Jesus, we have Joseph of Arimathea who is called a secret disciple. I'm not exactly sure what a secret disciple is because you know, there is that passage of Scripture where Jesus says, if you uh, deny me before people, then I'll deny you before the Father. And so you think, well, maybe there isn't such a thing as a secret disciple, except there's Joseph who is called a secret disciple. So our formulas that we try and make, our theology sometimes, are, are um, insufficient for the diversity that we find actually in our s- sacred text. So <clears throat> no one, there, there is no one in John's gospel who's called a disciple who's not a believer, who's not kind of all in with Jesus. So Joseph is a disciple. He's a secret disciple, but he's a disciple. And here's Nicodemus kind of hanging with him. Helping with the burial of Jesus. Maybe helping pay, I don't know, for the burial of Jesus. And so, <clears throat> I'm not the judge. I'm like you. I'm a witness. And I want to witness about how I've experienced Jesus in my life. And so, if I had to guess, I would say Nicodemus is a believer. That's my guess. And with the Samaritan woman, I have no doubt. I feel like I could be a character witness for her. I hope no one calls me to be a character witness for Nicodemus, because it's, there's a lot more ambiguity. But I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, he comes to Jesus. It might be at night, but he does come. He sticks up for Jesus in public. I mean, he shuts up pretty fast, but... He did speak up. He seemed to give money. I mean, that's a good thing, you know. Sacrifice, some form of sacrifice. But we don't want to just say those who come every now and then and those who give money are good to go. We kind of want a life that's lived. And maybe the story just doesn't tell us about Nicodemus. I don't know. But one of the things I hope that we can get at through this series is that with all of these characters in the Gospel of John, I hope that they can serve for us in some way as examples of how we might want to live. So that, at the end of our lives, someone won't have to say, Oh, Robbie Waddell, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, I think he was a Christian. He was a good guy. Loved his wife. Pastored that church for a while. He must have been a Christian, right? Or are we going to be like this woman who's nameless and marginalized? As we come to the table today, and I'm going to call for the servers in in just a second, but as we come to the table today, I want us to think about this. Jesus came into the world not as one on the top, but as one on the bottom. I mean, he came in the world and he was poor, right? He's Galilean Jew. He came in the world already as a kind of a marginalized people group, right? His country was owned and occupied by a foreign government. He, not unlike the woman, was powerless in ways. He's vulnerable. I mean, we want to think about the ways in which Jesus was conquering. But Jesus' conquering comes through his vulnerability. It comes through his love. Literally, it's the brokenness of Jesus that becomes our salvation, right? It's his his death on the cross that that becomes the means by which God uses to save us. Um, Jesus could have come as the conquering hero it would have left conquering heroes intact, the idea. And and as this gracious and benevolent conquering hero, it could have alleviated um, the abuse in the world. But if it had left intact conquering hero-ness, the next conquering hero to come along might have done it in ways that were more violent that were more destructive. And so Jesus, coming the way he does, doesn't just alleviate pain, but he dismisses those categories, and then thereby deconstructing the hierarchy altogether. At one point, the the woman at the well, she says, I know the Jews expect a Messiah. And he says, I am. We translate it, I am he, because that's just good grammar. But in the Greek, it lacks the he. It just says, I am. It's the same language that comes from the burning bush in Exodus. She says, I know the Jews expect the Messiah. And he says, ta-da! I am. It's me. If you're wondering the will of God for your life, it's to be like Jesus, to be self-sacrificial, to be giving, to ask those who are outside of your group for a drink of water, and then to share with them.